Romans 11, and this is where um, we've been looking through chapter 9, 10 last year, chapter 11 this year. This is a a section of Romans, which almost seems like a detour, but when you realize that the book of Romans is about the righteousness of God in the gospel that he's putting himself on display in his gospel, then it makes sense that 9, 10, and 11 is almost like under the microscope, looking at the ins and the outs and how God does work in the gospel of saving souls. And here in chapter 11, it deals uh, more specifically with the salvation of this ethnic Israel, the people who were the people of God that he delivered out of Egypt and he took through the wilderness, and they're called God's people. And so how is he to deal with them? Because it seems like, and it is, that they are lost right now. That they are not in God's favor. They're not in his care. They're not living like his people because we know that access to God is through the only one is Christ, our intercessor, and so our mediator. And so they're not. They reject that. And Paul's been speaking of that. Them stumbling over the stumbling stone that is the only way to God. That is through Christ's righteousness, not their own. And so We've been looking at chapter 11 and and the ins and the outs of why that is and how God is working in them. And so, um, I'm going to begin reading at verse 11 and we'll read just through verse 16. This is God's word in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What does this have to do with anything? How does this even apply to our lives? Important question to ask every time you come to a passage in the Bible. Uh, you more likely ask that question with confusion as you read through your Bible reading plan for the year and you get into Leviticus and Numbers and you think, why does it matter? But as you realize that God is putting himself on display in every single verse, in every single chapter of this word, and you, you ponder, what is God doing here? Where is he at work? And so Paul, in verse 13 and 14, he's kind of restating what he said in 11 and 12. And he says specifically, though, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So he's writing this letter to the Roman church, which is made up of majority of Gentiles. So non-historical Jews, they're not from the Israelite family, they're Gentiles. And he says, I'm speaking to you. Like, I'm not just talking here to to those who are my kinsmen, because Paul himself is a Jew. So he says, I'm not just talking about me for my benefit. He says, I'm talking to you. Which then means that he's talking to also you. You are likely not an ethnic Jew. You likely do not have Jewish heritage. This is a very small portion of the population. So when Paul says 
And we pay attention when he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. It's important to note, he's also speaking to me and, and to you. And he qualifies why he's speaking to them and, and, and how he's speaking to them. He says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Meaning, he was set apart on purpose with a specific task to the Gentiles. But how did he know that? How did he know that he was the apostle to the Gentiles? That he had this specific calling and ministry to bring this word, this gospel, to these non-Jewish people? He's a Jew. Why him? And in Acts chapter 9, when you read of Paul's conversion, this, this man who is writing this letter, who's saying, I am an apostle to the Gentiles, was once a man who sought to murder those who came to Jesus. Jew or Gentile, he didn't care. If they followed the way, Paul wanted to make sure they were locked up or dead. That was his job. And he was on the way to do that. He was on the road to Damascus to make sure that the Christians there, those who were believing in Jesus, were dealt with and silenced and, and put to death, if not just locked up. That's what he was going to do. And Jesus met him on the road. Jesus met him on the road and blinded him. If you know of Saul's conversion story, he blinded him and he spoke to him and he, he said, you're persecuting me, myself, Jesus said this. And, and so Paul was led into the city, blinded still. And then there was a, a faithful Christian named Ananias. And, and Jesus spoke to him and told him to go and talk to this Saul guy. What's amazing is Ananias says, I know what he's here to do. He's here to, to kill me. He's here to put me in jail. You want me to go to him? I've, I've heard of him. And, and Jesus said, yeah, you need to go to him because uh, I have a, a task for him. The Lord said to him, to, to Ananias, go, in Acts chapter 9, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Go. So Ananias went and he, and he prayed for Paul. And Paul was converted to Christ. He believed in the Lord. And he got up, was baptized, and right away started ministering. What an amazing transformation in this man who, Ananias said, he's coming to kill me. Now all of a sudden, Jesus says, no, he's my chosen instrument. So there, Jesus has set him apart for this ministry to the Gentiles. And, and so, he's saying this to the Roman church. He says, listen, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Remember, Christ has done this. Christ set me apart for this task. He enabled me, he equipped me, and now I'm here writing to you uh, to encourage you as a church, to strengthen you as a church. I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And what does he say next? He says, I magnify my ministry. What does that mean? Aren't we not supposed to magnify ourselves or things we do? Like, if you're, doesn't the Bible say that if you're giving to the poor... Don't let your left hand even know what your right hand's doing. Like, you shouldn't be magnifying yourself. Don't put yourself on display. Doesn't the Bible say that? But yet Paul seems to here. says, I magnify my ministry. I make much of my ministry. To you, the Gentiles, I'm making much of it. Why does he do that? He doesn't have it just so that he gets more praise and adoration, so that people can pat him on the back and, and you know, give him an honorary degree from the greatest university. He didn't need that. He, he didn't care about what man thought. And we see that again and again in Paul's letters. And, and you said even in these last couple of chapters, Paul did not care what man thought of him. All he cared was the mission of God to the people of God. And so he says, I magnify my ministry. And it wasn't about self 
affirmation. Why did he do it? He tells us. I magnify my ministry, verse 14. In order, here's why, here's the reason. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. I want what... What God is doing through me, this ministry that God is doing, I want it to be seen, and I want it to be known. I want them to see what's happening. That God is a God who saves, and it's not by, by your family heritage. It's not by your bloodline. It's by grace. And I want them to see. And I want them to know this God. And so I magnify my ministry. I'm not afraid to, to show what God is doing in me. And it's interesting because Paul, sure, as this, we think of Paul as like a super Christian, right? Paul is like one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. He was just full out, sold out for God. And you compare your life to Paul, you think, I'm not even close. I'll never be a Paul. But too many people also compare themselves to the mirror and they say, I'd never be a Christian. But Paul's a great person to compare himself to. This guy was breathing out murderous threats towards Christians and yet God has used him. And so when we see that Paul has this ministry from God, we also realize that you and I also have a ministry that um, God is displayed in. We are called to a certain people as well. God does not have you in your family by accident. He does not have you in your neighborhood by accident. He does not have you anywhere in your job or in your retirement where you are is not an accident. It is a ministry opportunity. And what is ministry but God's service through you? And so that's what Paul is doing. He says, I want this ministry of God to people and saving people, I want the Jews to see it. And he says, my fellow Jews. He's making it personal. These are, these are my kinsmen, as he has in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and here again in chapter 11. He says, I love them. I love these people. They are my people and I want them to be jealous because they're supposed to cry out and say, that's my God. Just like when you have kids and one kid gets a little special treatment. You know, other kid's going to come crying, well, what, where's mine? If you're, um, you know, I don't know your parenting methods, but uh, some parents these days go, well, you know, I don't want this one kid to just have a special date, so this kid also has a special thing. All kids have a special thing at the same time. Like, on Joe's birthday, Sally also gets present. Like, that makes no sense. But that's how some parents operate these days because you can't have a kid feel excluded. Well, yes, you do. Let them feel excluded so that they're jealous and they long for, for this special day or this special thing. It's a good thing to have this sense of, like, I, I want that. And so we see that in, in the immaturity of children. But, but Paul's saying that is it's good for the Jews to be jealous of saying, Hey, that's my God. They shouldn't have a relationship with my God. That's supposed to be my father. I'm supposed to be his people. Where's my relationship? How come I'm not close with God right now? And Paul says, I want what is happening in the Gentiles to be seen. I want them to see how God is near to these people, how he's working through these people, how he's saving these people, and how they are his people. So that they may say, that's supposed to be me. And then, rather than, as they sought to do, is seeking their own way, they would say, well, how did they get it? Because they're not from God's chosen people. They're not from our family heritage. How did they get this thing? How did they get that relationship with God? And then, in that discovery, to say, God is so gracious. It's not based on who I am or my family or my works or anything. But if God is saving them by grace, then he ought to save me by grace. 
That's the whole point of making them jealous so that they may, by God's grace, discover the way of salvation. So Paul says, I'm not afraid to, to, to make my ministry known to them. I want those Jews to be looking in at this church and saying, wow, God is doing something amazing there in saving people for himself, not by their own works. So he says, I magnify my ministry in order to make some of my fellow Jews jealous. Because the ultimate goal of that is not just the jealousy of his brothers and kinsmen. He doesn't just want to produce jealous people. The end is, he says, and thus to save some of them. He's talking about the salvation of souls here. He wants to magnify his ministry, celebrate and continue to invest in this ministry because he has the same goal that he always had. He wants to see them saved. It's a big deal to him. And he's not just saying that like, oh, I'm magnifying my ministry, I'm doing all positive things, and then I hope they get saved through that. Remember at the beginning of chapter 9, he said, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh. Like he's saying, I would give up my salvation if I could so that some of them could be saved. Like that's how much I care for them and I want them to know the saving knowledge of Jesus. Like he desires for them to know Jesus. He wants to see Jews saved. I think we can quickly read through things like that. Even the, the idea of saved or, or salvation in the Bible, we, we too lightly pass by it. It's become a common word. Common phrase. But what's at stake here is the salvation of eternal souls of real men and real women. And Paul is probably picturing them. But when you and I read this, we just say, yeah, yeah, he wants them to be saved. Carry on. Um, Let's get to the lumps and and let's get to the branches. and Let's think about these analogies. Well, stop for a second. Wonder and just wonder at why Paul is so concerned. Because he's thinking about their salvation and their souls. For all of eternity. Perhaps we get too comfortable with this language of of saved. We become unaffected by the weight of it. I'll admit it, I do. And as I did mention as we looked at chapter 9, that I am not one of those people that, as Paul says he is, that has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. I'm not one. I don't know about you. If you have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in your heart, for the lost. Uh, why not? It just so quickly passes us by. The idea of someone needing to be saved is like, oh yeah, yeah, they need to be saved. But do we feel the weight of it? It's likely that we don't feel the weight of it. It's owing to the fact for myself that I think too lightly of their sinful condition. I think too lightly about that and its consequences. Maybe because it's horrifying, you don't want to play it out. That if they are not saved, if they remain in their sin and the consequence of that sin, it's not just another pat word. It's not just a a word on a paper. Hell. It's not just that. It is a real person under real torment for a real period of time. It's eternity. And, And so, if we think too lightly about that or it just passes by as a word on the page, then yeah, we're not affected We see Paul repeatedly coming again and again and so concerned for the salvation of their souls. He's doing all that he can do in order to see even some saved, he says. Even just one. He's making all the effort he can so that one might be saved. 
It's the center of what Paul is talking about here is the salvation of these people. So then you must ask, well, saved from what and saved for what? What are they saved from? Just from like sickness or something? What are they saved for? Just, just so they can have a badge on their shoulder that says I'm a God's person? What are they saved from? What are they saved for? Well, the gospel is good news that Jesus' death and his resurrection saves people from the power of sin. He wants to see them saved from the power of sin. And it's ugly idolatry. It, sin captures people to worship things other than God, and he wants to see them saved from that. So then, think in your own mind of, of some people that you know who are not saved. They do not belong to God. They've not come through Jesus alone to God. They're not saved. Are you thinking about them being captured by the power of sin and them being enslaved to worshiping things other than God. Do you think about that? And the the fact that they need rescue from that, they need deliverance from that, and there's no way they can get themselves out. Think about what do they need to be saved from? The power of sin and its ugly idolatry. Save them from that. Second thing they need to be saved from, as Romans 5 tells us, is the wrath of God. Their idolatry, their their power of sin just produces more sin in them, more offense towards God, and they need to be rescued because the consequence of that sin is wrath. It's judgment poured out by God, rightful judgment, righteous judgment. So they need to be saved from that wrath. Romans 5 tells us they are. If they're there in Jesus, he stood in their place, and the wrath was all poured out on him so that when they come through Jesus, there's nothing left. So they can be saved from the power of sin when they're born again, they're new, and they're saved from wrath when they're in Jesus. What are they saved for? What is Paul's desire that they be saved for? Scripture tells us this as a whole. They are saved for enjoyment of God. Right? We said it today. To enjoy God. Enjoy God. That's our purpose. Because as God is enjoyed, as we delight ourselves in God... It it brings him glory. It brings him the adoration, the admiration he deserves. It says, you are worthy. You alone are worthy of my fullness of joy, my contentment, my pursuit of anything satisfying is you. And what does that say about the thing or the person? It says you're great and there's nothing greater. So we are saved for our enjoyment of God. And it's amazing. Paul wants this. For his fellow Jews, he wants them to be jealous of what's happening amongst the Gentiles so that some of them may be saved from the power of sin, from the wrath of God, and for the glory of God and his enjoyment. He wants them to be saved. So then think about people in your life. You can picture them right now. People who are not saved. People who you know reject Jesus. Do you want that for them? That they will be free from the power of sin, free from under the wrath of God, and free to enjoy God. Because they can't without Christ. So then we, we ought to pray for them. We ought to, just as Paul, just be so concerned for their salvation. Even, even one. Sometimes I think maybe, even for myself, you know, you think the task is too big. Right? Out of the majority of people I know, how many people actually don't know Jesus? The majority. And so it's just too big a task, and maybe 
Because oh, I don't know about your to-do list at home, but if your to-do list is too big, maybe you don't even do one thing. Because you think, oh, that's just too big. Just set it aside. But if you just take one thing, you take one person, and you begin praying fervently for them, and you begin pursuing a, a, a trusting, loving relationship with them, and you tell them that you love them and, and God loves them and doesn't want them to be stuck in the power of sin and, and worshiping things like themselves or their own man-made religion, God doesn't want them to have to be under the weight of his full wrath because they won't survive. And God wants them to enjoy, to have full joy. Not just now, but forevermore, Psalm 16 says. Think of one person this week specifically, as Paul does, have a heart for them, pursue them, do what it takes so that you might thus save some of them. But he goes on in verse 15. It's interesting because he says, for if their rejection, he's repeating what he said in 11 and 12, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, we discuss what that means, like they rejected God, the Jews rejected God on purpose, by God's design for a time, so that the missionaries would then go to the rest of the world and you and I would be saved. It was God's beautiful, difficult design, but we're thankful for it. So there, it says their rejection God rejected them, they rejected God for a time, means reconciliation for the world. Well, what will their acceptance mean? What will it mean if God was to accept them again and they were to accept God again? What would that mean if right now, while they're not accepted, the world's being saved? What more will it mean if these people, who were meant to be historically devoted to God, if they were? What would that mean for the world? Well, it says it would mean life from the dead. What would it mean but life from the dead, verse 15 says. Their acceptance would mean life from the dead. If the dying Savior could redeem us, and much more the resurrected Savior would sustain us, in the same logic then, Israel, would, and their, their rejection brings salvation to the Gentiles, how much more will their faithfulness bring? Well, the Lord promises that, that one day, Israel will receive the Messiah, that she rejected. He says in Zechariah 12 that, that God will pour out on the house of David, that is Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. They'll do it. And then, Zechariah 13 says, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. They'll be washed And following that, Zechariah 14 tells us, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. And there will be no more curse. And it will come about that any who are left in all the nations will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. That's what will happen when they begin to accept that, that something will take place in terms of God doing amazing things. It's amazing to see that it says there will be life from the dead. What does that even mean? There's two senses in which the Bible talks about death and two senses in which it talks about resurrection. Um, First would be a spiritual death and resurrection, right? So we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unresponsive to God's love, His mercy, His grace. You're dead. So we need a spiritual resurrection. We need to live in order to be um, responsive to God. And then there's also the physical death. We all will one day die, but then we'll one day be resurrected to to life eternal or to judgment eternal. But 
on the spiritual resurrection from the dead, there is no greater passage that just gives us a beautiful picture of what God will do in his desire than Ezekiel 37. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to read almost the whole of Ezekiel 37. Um, So, if you'd like, you can track along with me. It is just a beautiful passage showing us uh, exactly what this is talking about in Romans chapter 11. Their acceptance means but life from the dead. What does that even look like for them? Ezekiel chapter 37. It's well known. It's the valley of the dry bones. Here's what it says in in Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me. So so pause there. He's showing you the vast number of them. He says, there's very many dry bones here. And the bones are very, very dry. It's not like these are just like, just fresh bones. They are, they're long, dry. They've been long dead, spiritually. So there's many of them and they're very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and breathe, and put breath into you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath came into them. And they lived, and they stood to their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. And indeed we are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And when I open up your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your lands. And then down to verse 23, it says, and they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols. Remember, deliverance and our salvation is deliverance from our worship of idols. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any other of their transgressions. But I will save them 
I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set in them, them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That's great and beautiful. A moving picture of what God desires to do for dry, very dry bones that are scattered. Many of them. This is his people Israel, he said. They are dry. They're dead. There is no life in them. There is no relationship with God in them. They are far gone. But he, he, he shows us the beauty that he will not only put them back together, he will resurrect them spiritually. Those who were once far off, he will bring near. He, he does it to you and to me who were spiritually dead. He makes us alive. And he will one day, again, do it to his people Israel. He will form with them this everlasting covenant. He, we mentioned multiple weeks ago that he's kind of kept his remnant so that his promise is faithful, that he said, I will have this everlasting covenant with my people. He's not broken that promise. Even if it's one ethnic Jew, he's not broken his promise through all the ages. And he will bring them in, a, a large portion of them back again. He will resurrect them spiritually. And then... That spiritual resurrection, a hope, a relationship with God, leads to the hope of a physical resurrection. That one day, they too will stand before God with their bodies in fraternity and worship Him. A bodily resurrection. It's a beautiful picture of what God will do for His people. That's what their acceptance means, that when God accepts them once again and, and they accept Him, it will mean life from the dead. And then verse 16 in Romans chapter 11, again, it has an interesting transition to the next section. That if you read it on its own, it makes no sense. And if you try to analyze it too far, it also makes no sense. But it says in verse 16, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So if the dough offered as first fruits is holy... That comes out of the idea of first fruits in Numbers chapter 15. When the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so you shall present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. And so here the word first fruit, and, and in, when Paul uses the word first fruit, uh, it's really important to think, well, how does he use it versus the Old Testament? He normally signifies that this is an initial work 
of God's pledge that he's going to do more. That, that God's just, this is just the start of what God is doing. And so it says, if the dough offered up as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And this concept of not just the first fruits and not just the dough is important. But if you're a careful Bible reader, you'll notice the word holy is repeated. Holy is not just the this holy first fruits, but then the holy root. It's this first portion is somehow holy, somehow set apart. And he says it's going to be a continual practice. So when Zechariah speaks of the future that is yet to come, how does he use this idea of holy? Because oftentimes you and I think about holy in terms of moral purity, right? We think holy only means you're a good person. But holy in the Old Testament most often meant set apart or consecrated to God for ministry or service. Um, And so lots of things could be called holy. And Zechariah 14 tells of when this will happen, one day when things will become holy again. It says, and on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And on the pots in the house of the Lord shall be uh, holy before the altar. And then every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil meat and sacrifice there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. So when, as a nation, the, the Jews will be brought back to God, and He'll forgive their sins and purify them, in that day there will be no more mixture. There won't be a mixture of some of the Jews are, are remnant and some are not. And the larger portion lost. There will be no more people of the Jews in this day, according to Paul, where some will be saved and some will not. There will be a day when, because the first fruits was, then the whole lump will be holy, thoroughly purified, so that they, everything associated with them will be holy, even the bells on their horses and the pots on their stoves. They will be set apart to God in the degree in which everything they want to touch, they want to dedicate to God. This is to God. The bell on their horse was set apart for God's service. We want this to be for God's service. We want the pot on our stove to be for God's service. You want the wheel on your car to be for God's service. The glasses on your face to be for God's service. The shoes on your feet to be for God's service. That's what it meant for things to be holy to the Lord. It's set apart to be used for God. Holy to the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce says, in the paragraph right before this in Zechariah, He describes the revitalized people going to Jerusalem to worship God and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a feast in which the first fruits were offered. But the reason for the reference at this point in Zechariah is that the Feast of Tabernacles, listen carefully, was the final harvest festival when the whole year's crops were gathered in. Boyce says you can't miss the symbolism in that. It was the final harvest festival where the whole crop was gathered. That's what Paul is reminding us of and sort of pointing us to is is that final harvest when when they're all gathered in as they're supposed to be. And it'll all be because one portion, the, the first fruits, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their family heritage was set apart to God 
when they return to their family heritage, they will be set apart to God. The symbolism is there in the Feast of Tabernacles. It was in this day that the crop of Israel was gathered to the Lord. Israel and nation will be holy to them, dedicated to God once again. And then it says, and if the root is holy, in verse 16, so are the branches. Remember the point of the placement of these analogies here is proving that Israel was not cut off forever. That God still was going to be merciful to this people. That he still had his covenant in mind. God is a God of connections and covenants. So they, because they are connected, doesn't mean they're saved automatically. This is not what Paul's assuming, that just one day, like in 2025, all of a sudden, God's just going to say, you know what, every person who's an ethnic Jew, you're in heaven. It's not how it's going to be. But God, by his mercy, is going to pour out his spirit upon them. They're going to come to Christ, see Christ for who he is, and they will be those people of the everlasting covenant. In Genesis 17, 7, he's speaking to Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your offspring after you. God made a covenant with his people. A covenant that these people would be set apart for him. And so here in this passage, especially in verse 16, when we see the word holy repeated, we understand that this holiness is this set-apartness, this consecration for God's service. It's the first of everything. So then when you think about your own life, you think, do I give God my first, my best? Um, and as you read the Old Testament, you realize like, that's really important to God, right? Like the best of the flock belong to God. Your firstborn child belonged to God. The top of your paycheck belonged to God. Like you give to God first, and then whatever you have left over, you live off of. And so then you ask of yourself, like, does God get my first, best, most cherished portion? Does he have parts of my life that are holy to him, consecrated to him? Is my whole life offered to him, set apart for him, given to his service, fully surrendered, up on an altar, saying, whatever you want of it, it's yours. And oftentimes I think we go the opposite. You know, We take, 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 and whatever we have left over, we give to God. That's why we don't read our Bibles, right? We are so busy that we have, don't have time. So then what we have left, we try to give to God. We've got 10 minutes, and we're tired. We don't, we don't pray like we ought, because we give all of ourselves to everything else, and God does not get our first. And so that's why I am not a morning guy, but that's why mornings are really kind of valuable, that you would wake up and give time to God, because then everything else will fall to place, or it won't get done, and that doesn't matter. What, what matters most is your time set apart for God. And so pray. Read your Bible. Spend time serving God with the, with the most of your energy rather than, I'll wait and see what I got left. You know, I got all this work to do. I got family stuff to do. And then I'll see if I got time for God and, like, serve him. That's, that's backward. That's, that's not a concept of God's holy people, right? His holy people are set apart to him first and foremost in everything. Even the bells on their horses are set apart for him first. But yet, us needing a reminder here this morning is we need to be holy, set apart to God first so that he might receive glory and so that people might be seeing God at work in our lives and saying, wow, God is so unique to them. God is so incredible to them. God is so valuable to them that they would give everything up front, a blank check to God up front. 
Is God not worth that? Of course he is. The answer is, of course God is worth that. So why are we so the other way? It's because we're sinful. So we need to admit that before God. We need to confess that before God. God, here's my sin of laziness. Here's my sin of selfishness. Here's my sin of greed. All of these things that that kind of take God from being first and put him wherever he fits next. God, let's confess these things. Let's confess these things to one another for accountability so that we might begin to be people who would be holy to God ourselves and all that we have would be given up and set aside for God's use. And of course, holiness in the Bible is not just about being consecrated for God's use. It's about purity as well. It's about purity. We know that more often. We normally think of holiness as this when Peter says, be he who called you is holy, so you ought to be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then in 1 John chapter 3, it says this. This is important. Everyone who puts his hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we hope in God, we, we set our morals aside as well for him, first and foremost. What does God say is right? That's what's right to me. What does God say is wrong? Well, that's what's wrong to me. And so then we live under that reality of holiness. Not just in setting apart things for God and to God, but in our whole selves, including our moral compass, which says right and wrong. It's God's. So we set it apart, first and foremost, because even if that would have one person come and say, I'm so jealous for what you have with God. You have such a relationship. You have something worth more value than... You don't even care about your income right now. I can tell you don't care about what you drive or what you wear. I can, I can tell that you don't care in comparison to how you care about God. And people, God uses that in people's life to just break them and say, why do I care about stuff that rots and moths destroy? We treasure God above all things for His glory and for the salvation of other souls. Let's do that, and let's pray to that end. Well, Father, you are fully deserving of our whole selves, and God, you know that our, our whole selves, our flesh, our desires, our moral compass, we are broken. Um, God, we are sinful, we are selfish, But God, we are so thankful for the gospel of Jesus. We're so thankful that you didn't just leave us in our state with our own religion, our own journey, and our own path to try to make things right before you so that we could one day maybe go to heaven. Oh God, we are so grateful that you came, that you raised our dry bones, that you took us who were spiritually dead, who were unresponsive to gospel and grace, And you took us and you made us alive together with Christ. And that in Jesus you have bore the wrath of our sin and has dealt with in full for those of us who trust, for those of us who long to live with him and and place our full reliance and, and hope upon him. God, help us to do that. We're so grateful for the gospel. Help us to celebrate that gospel by being people who desire others to come to that saving knowledge of Jesus, that they would see our lives and see what we treasure in you, how precious you are to God, us, God. We want you to be more precious as a result of us meeting together today. God, would you show us the areas of our life which we put first? And would you transform them? 
Transform them through your word, transform them by your spirit in our hearts, but also by the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if anyone does not trust in you first and foremost for their own salvation, they're looking to themselves, God, wreck them in this moment. Show them that their system and their um, hope is broken and it's empty if it's not in Jesus. God, make them jealous and long for a relationship with God in Christ and to see what that means for those who love him. God, make, make people jealous for that in our lives, that they would see how much we love you, how much you're worth, how much we value our relationship to you, that, so that we would give all of ourselves. God, use that, I pray. Set us apart. Make us holy. For your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.